Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hi, this is Elizabeth. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Side Woo. Today, Sarah and I are excited for us to be talking with Desiree Holman, who is an artist and wellness practitioner. Desiree received her master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley. She was among the 2008 Sika Art Award winners from SFMOMA, as well as a 2007 winner of the Artadia Fund for Art and Dialogue. She has exhibited solo shows at the Hammer Museum, the Berkeley Art Museum's Matrix Program, Gerber Buena Center for the Arts, and internationally. But Desiree left the art world, which is fascinating to talk about considering that success like that is an irresistible pull for so many people. But when you leave something, and this is what really came up for us, Are you really doing a pivot or is it a new way of manifesting your core interests? In 2019, Desiree founded FACE, a body positive, aging positive, gender inclusive and judgment free beauty and wellness space. You can learn more about FACE by visiting her website, youareface.com. So anytime the phrase beauty and wellness is used together, I honestly have an initial reaction of like, how can prioritizing beauty be part of wellness when it's an inherent part of so many toxic cultural frameworks? Well, we really get down to it in this episode and Desiree has some incredibly healing perspectives about wellness and beauty in particular. If you would like to give feedback about this episode, please email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com. As always, we look forward to hearing what you think. So now it's time for the episode. Enjoy. How's it going? It's going well. I'm in my infrared sauna. Oh, nice. I was going to say, you have really cool lighting behind you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the lighting will be changing throughout. It, like the the lights change colors. Oh my god, fun! Like a party. Yeah, it's like a party. Party bulb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a party bulb. You guys, I have a very specific way that my brain is like pulsing with wanting to know certain information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it like? Is it okay if we start with that wavelength? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I remember. You you did a, l- a little thing with Dina Beard at Royal Nonsuch in 2010, and I your work stuck with me so concretely. They're working with the reborn dolls, and I think having had an abortion and a miscarriage, and then eventually having a child, it's just when I fr- I'd never heard of that concept of reborn dolls, and I I just. I had such an emotional reaction to seeing it. I almost couldn't go near that side of the gallery. Like it was actually that intense. And so my line of questioning was definitely starting with like, given that you brought 
such emotional work into, and that's really reductive to what your work was. That was just my personal link to it right then and there. But given what you brought into the art world and had a solo show at the Hammer and YBCA and all of these pretty fancy things, how did that transition happen? And then also the the conceptual threads that go between identity and costuming and how like the outer self and the inner self reflect back to one another. And then in a world now where you're helping people have their outer and their inner selves maybe be more in alignment, like what that continuation thread is. I think that that's, that's a really great place to start. For me, in my own psycho-spiritual barometer, which is a really private and personal experience of, of facilitating or making art, I found the most flow and joy in working with other people. And I really tried to, and sometimes it would be like working with another person, but in private, like sculpting them or drawing them or making a costume for them or thinking about choreography for them. These sort of things are thinking about like camera work, what I wanted to show of them. And, but other times it was in person, it was noticing their breath. It was, it was energetically, when I was at my best, and I'm not saying this happened 100% of the time, but the most satisfying moments in my entire career as an artist were connecting with the people that I worked with as performers. And when I was able to hear them, and when I say hear, I'm putting that in air quotes, I don't just mean orally hearing them. I mean, energetically hearing them, using my energetic, maybe psychic, even an emotional abilities to read them and then facilitating an action or an image that I felt captured or aligned with what I was able to connect with. So a really great example that I can think of is in a performance that I directed with the Red Rocks with Courtney Lane Stell and Black Cube Museum. There was this performer I had cast and we were doing rehearsals and I quickly realized that this performer presented as a man, but was a woman and wanted to be a woman. And in the course of the, of the rehearsals, we got to play act, change the character and the costuming. And by the time we performed, I felt like she was able to inhabit the character that she was, an expression of herself. Mm. And that was really powerful for yeah, me. Yeah, wow. That sounds like That's 10 beautiful. years of therapy and like two weeks, like the embodiment of therapy rather than like the intellectual discussion around who you are and what you need to feel complete. Yeah, well, it's really powerful for me too. That's a very formative experience for me. And I have a handful, a generous handful of experiences like that. And I, we didn't always, this is my interpretation of the experience. We often didn't explicitly put language to it. And I wasn't, often didn't want to do that. 
And anyhow, in terms of that like personal barometer around art making and what fed my soul and what was good, that's it. And there's lots of different examples I could give you, but that's just the one that came to my head right now. That is what I lived for. That was what gave me flow. That's what felt profound. It's really something I very, very rarely publicly talked about or framed the work in, but it was that experience. So I got that flow and that exchange. Obviously, you know, you can get that flow in painting or dancing too. But so I'm going to kind of put that to the side for a moment and talk about the transition of art to where I am now, which is an evolving medical practice, which I'm not there yet. It's a long road, but that actually feels really immaterial and kind of spiritual to me. A lot of things in my personal life shifted that made it harder for me to pursue a career that didn't provide enough money for me to live in a Mm. way that I wanted to live. And I'm also a mother. And so some things in my personal life shifted that caused all these changes. Luckily, I had a little bit of transition time and I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't really want to go back to part-time teaching with a child. It wasn't possible for me to apply for a full-time tenure track position in another state because I was, you know, sharing custody with my child. And I was able to kind of flow for a little while and figure out what was next. And this is going to be really abstract, but I'm going to describe the kind of internal experience of this transition, which I had no idea was going to happen. I started with one particular type of treatment and the, the experience of learning that or having it open up to me was like I was sitting in my garden and an paper airplane out of rice paper just like floated into my lap and I unfolded it and I like jumped through the the paper and that was falling down a rabbit hole I literally had no idea this was going to happen in my life I had no idea how I was going to make money what art was going to mean to me I had been completely identified as an artist I never imagined I would do anything else with my life ever And what was the specific, like, what were you doing when the paper airplane landed in your lap and you went through the portal? So there's not a specific moment. I'm kind of describing the feeling of months. Okay. Yeah. So there wasn't. Like a moment of clarity where you're like, oh my, you know, this was a slower reveal. It was a way slower reveal, but it's like I went in through that portal of opening the rice paper, the metaphorical rice paper. And I just didn't even, it was like so thin and transparent. I didn't even know something had changed. And it took a while moving forward, but I was like, oh my God, my life is totally changing and I'm happy. This feels right. And so it, it, it happened to be in this one particular type of treatment called plasma fibroblast. It's a way of drawing with ionized gas plasma, which is the fourth state of matter. And it it will cause you, you draw on the skin and in really particular patterns. And over time, three months or more, it causes the skin to change, like tighten up or shift in different directions. You can like Mm. lift a brow or lift a kneecap or lift Mm -hmm. a breast a little bit or like tighten a neck. 
but it requires drawing skills, a steady hand. It requires really seeing. It it requires having that that thing unfold over time and understand that six weeks later, a fibroblast cell is going to hatch on the connective tissue layer that undergirds the skin, the the dermal layers. Mm. And then that is going to differentiate into collagen or elastin fibers. And depending on how you draw it is how the skin's going to pull. So, and then you have to have an understanding of the tissues and aesthetics of volume and things like that. Mm. And then... So it was like, okay, this is like a world I already kind of know about because I was an illustrator. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did as an artist, but the thing that's probably more powerful for me than the formal skills that what I do kind of takes and all of the stuff I do really draws on the art background, the kind of formal aspects of Mm -hmm. volume, symmetry, balance. But was that piece of seeing somebody and hearing there's an energetic and psychosocial dimension of treating what will soon be, you know, in time be my patients right now, they're my clients and actually hearing them and not just hearing what they're saying, but seeing their energy, seeing what's really behind their words and where the sticky parts are, what they're actually talking about and what's really bothering them and knowing if I can help and where I can't. I mean, it's all, I have so many questions like buzzing at the same time. I'm going to try to, okay, here's one, one comma. Here we go. In, and you're in the Bay area right now, or are you? In Oakland right now. So, and I'm in Oakland too. One of the ways beauty is, and beauty treatments are understood, you know, culturally in the Bay area is that if you are looking to do something that makes you look more traditionally younger than you are not acting in full integration with who you are organically. And I would imagine, was it a hard, was there like a coming out process or did you just come into it being like, oh no, I can understand how the concept of working with my face and my body and tightening and looking a different way can be in collaboration and and integration with your deeper self? Or was it letting go of some of what the Bay Area talks about when it talks about what it means to be like authentic? And yeah, like specifically thinking about the art world, when you're an artist as a place that you're supposed to be 100% against mainstream culture you're supposed to be the one that challenges it. So any move towards the mainstream, what we've been marketed as like the canon of beauty, that is a failure to fully reject what you're being served, you know, through capitalism and the patriarchy. And and we've talked about this a little bit about how there's like a feeling of no fun in the art world sometimes where, you know, you're expected to wear all black or like the safe space is like all black, not super feminine, you know, very protective codes of dress. I don't know that everyone who dresses that way would describe it that way, but that's what it has felt to me. And like we had Sarah Potter on and she's like, you know, when I worked as a gallery I wore all black and had these really angular haircuts and then she's now wearing like all pink. So I don't know, is is that resonating with you at all or? 
Yeah, it definitely resonates. I mean, I definitely consider myself a feminist. I'm I'm 48 years old and I'm very proud to be 48 years old. I think there's maybe some suppositions in the conversation that I embrace and also some that I reject, but I also just to kind of bring it back to the the art world thing being educated my formative art world education being in the kind of author danto anything goes ethos of the late 90s i'm definitely a product of that and i don't really find conflict in, in embracing what seems like contradictions and i i for me, I find a philosophical approach that I feel like I can resolve those contradictions, but I don't equate not tweaking your appearance to being authentic. So that's that's just like a dichotomy that I completely reject. And I think for I do a subspecialty is gender affirming care. And I think that's a way that that's maybe a framework that might be embraced in the art world where we could begin to understand how tweaking our appearance for some people actually equates to being more of their authentic self. Yeah, and empowering. And I'm not even saying that that is true, but I'm just, that's maybe... uh, Well, I was just going to say, I mean, for myself, you and I talked a little bit before this, but having grown up with a birth defect where I immediately, like three months into my life, had to get reconstructive surgery. And then I've had two other surgeries since then. It always felt like my surgeries were a result of something that was like bad. I always kind of internalized it as this part of myself that I wasn't very comfortable with. And so I always looked at plastic surgery as this like shameful thing that people did when they didn't love themselves. And then, you know, I started watching RuPaul and saw how many of the drag queens and drag culture in general really embraces this like shifting of appearances as a way to be more empowered and take agency over a body that maybe doesn't reflect how you feel inside. And it just totally shifted my understanding of, I think it's still a hurdle that I struggle with, but it did shift the place that I was starting from when talking about it. It just made me start feeling like there's a way to use it as a tool rather than another bar on this prison that we as women inhabit, you know, around having to look a certain way and conform to certain standards of beauty. And again, it's still something I struggle with because I think that there is going to always be a canon of beauty that maybe shifts per culture, but... Yeah, I there's so much there's so much to say on this topic. There is I, I really appreciate drag queens and transgender people who choose to alter their bodies. And I don't think that's the only way to be transgender, just for the record. But I think that to some extent they have given cisgendered women and femme identified cisgendered women a pass. We have gone through this history, which is also perfectly valid. Again, I'm in the anything goes camp. You do you. It's your body, your choice. That's my stance. But there was this kind of history that someone was being inauthentic or fake if they're doing something to 
alter their appearance. And sure, that could be true. And they could also be empowering themselves. Sure, they might be responding to hegemonic ideals of beauty and just trying to to fit into that. And they may be doing something that empowers them and makes them feel good and nobody else ever knows. And their mate, if they have a mate, doesn't even notice, you know, and... Well, just there's like this false polemic that I just don't think that I think does a disservice to everybody. It's like there's real world discrimination that's out in the world that is influenced by the way that we look and our social power. And that's real. And we can choose to sidestep that. And I think that that's a beautiful and valid choice. We can also make different decisions. Like, let me just ask you, do you think the election with Hillary Clinton might have had a different outcome if Hillary Clinton had a facelift? That's mm-hmm. a rhetorical question to some extent, but because yeah. we can't know the answer. A thought experiment. I mm-hmm. think there is a there's a real possibility that the way she was received would be different. Well, I think if she was he, obviously, that would be the most concrete difference that would have swung the election. But also maybe if she presented in a, in a more feminine way, thinking about the Fox News anchors, they are tough as nails, but then they have this standard where they all have blonde hair and they're really feminine and young looking. And I think, yeah, probably... She would have. And it kind of makes me think of, again, to talk about RuPaul, he talks about, you know, just everything's a game. And so you just have to know the rules and decide how you're going to play it. And he talked about how he started wearing suits because people took him more seriously when he'd go into a meeting wearing a suit. And like, you know, you could say that that's buying into certain traditions of masculinity. But at the same time, if you're trying to change a system, I guess part of it, what I think that you're doing is you have to know where your limitations are and like what the rules of the game in order to like change it from within. You maybe can't make any real impact if you're just like banging on the door from the outside. I don't know. Maybe you can. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, they have very strong feelings around medical aesthetics and our choice around making appearance changes. But I think as a clinic to be, I have a philosophy that I feel is medically justifiable when we think about treating the psychosocial dimension of a patient and improving their life outcomes, like how they feel about themselves and how they succeed in their environment. Making a treatment that helps them succeed is medically justifiable. The the whole spiritual energetic part, trauma-informed care, psychosocial intelligence care gives it's important for me to ascertain whether this person is really in a pathological position around something they want to do and or what they want done is really out of whack with deliverable results and or what they want done is so far of a distortion from what is normal and would make them succeed in the environment, which again, I don't have a judgment about that. If somebody wants to do radical stuff, that's great. That is, but that's a different kind of thing than what I want to do and I'm choosing to do as a provider. So I will not treat that kind of person. When anybody falls in those categories, I have to find other ways to be like, okay, we need 
help. You need other kinds of help or I can't treat you because I'm going to give you something that you're not actually going to be happy with. You're going to be more unhappy than happy. And that... You're kind of saying if you had a patient come in requesting something, you would potentially turn them away because you felt like what they were asking for wasn't realistic. If they had like massive body dysmorphia or... Bingo. That, both. Both. Both of those things. Yeah. Which is not uncommon. Those things are not uncommon. I just have respect for providers who use that framework. Not every med spa does. And kind of as, again, I'm not a med spa yet, but I will be. I'm also interested, really deeply interested in functional medicine and preventive medicine. And a lot of the med spa stuff that's like the typical menu is is not really stuff that I'm actually that interested in. So I, I don't know if I will do Botox or not. Botox may be, and, and I have to preface this, no judgment against Botox. It's an effective preventive treatment. That's a bigger conversation we can get into if we want to. But I don't know that I will want to do Botox because I tend to be interested in like, how can we deal with the mutations in the DNA in the cell to undo or prevent the wrinkle as opposed to freezing the communication in the synaptic cleft where the muscle is going to contract. Not one isn't better than the other. It's just like, that's where my interest is. I see myself evolving in a way where I'm actually more interested in thinking about health at beauty being an outcome of good health. So looking at good health as a metric in the med spa space. And so it's really antithetical to here's this kind of beauty thing that you should be, or someone comes and sits in the chair and they're like, what's wrong with me? Fix it. You know, like, no way. I do not We'll never do that. So there'll be things I'll be doing in the future, like peptide therapies. You know, it's, sorry, hold on. Give me one second. I am also 48. I'm in perimenopause and I swear things just like come and go sometimes. And it drives me absolutely bonkers because I have it. And then I go to say it and I'm like, where did you go? Oh my God. Okay, here we go. Number one is, When I'm listening to you talk, it's you're actually reflecting my reality, number one, which is I'm like a Bay Area chick and I'm wearing my sweatshirt. I don't have a bra on. My hair's up in a blah, blah. And, you know, I go to laser away, which is a little bit of an assembly line. But like I've done all the things that people do. I clear and brilliant and Botox and cold sculpting. Like I, I do that stuff. And people are like, no, not you. That's impossible. And I'm like, no, that it's actually super possible. It's super possible. And it's not connected to my past history of eating disorders or body dysmorphia. It's a, it's a separate thing, which I'm always having to sort of, I, in some ways justify to people. There's so much cultural emphasis now, especially because of social media and because everybody has like a platform on telling your story and having your story be heard and sort of anything being brought up into a higher vibrational frequency by being turned into a narrative. I think what you are saying is I'm coming into this space and I am changing the way it's discussed and I'm changing the way the client is 
engaging in the conversation around what their physical appearance is. And that is part of the radical change. It's not that the, you know, the face laser is different at um, your face. I mean, I'm sure because of you being an artist and having a sensitivity, it can be performed differently, but like a laser is a laser, but you're saying like this narrative that is brought to it is what makes this transformational and maybe taking something from the really limited beauty industry and saying, let's talk about it in a complicated way is what is radical about it. So it's like, I find myself wanting to be like, no, but this is, this is still the canon of beauty. But then I am like, oh my gosh, but I actually live the experience that you're talking about. So it's, it's all very complicated and interesting. Yeah. And being someone who doesn't, I still, I think there is a part of me that wonders like, well, when is it going to stop? And at what point does the message that old faces don't deserve to hold space get communicated as, as we age, are we expected to always look a certain age? And how does that affect younger women who don't see as many older faces around them? You know, so I don't know if, that's like even a fair question because there are, will always be older women around. But yeah, I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Because I really struggle. Like, what message do I want to send to people after me, you know, who are getting a lot of different messages right now? And I feel like we are responsible for sending them. Well, there was a couple of things in there. So I just I want to respond to how I see the f- future medical spa that I'm building being differentiated from a typical, I'm not saying every med spa because there's a lot of amazing folks out there and practitioners out there. So I want to give that credit and acknowledgement, but one, it is framing this type of work through the lens of preventive medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine, thinking about the whole body. That's one thing. That's what Liz was addressing. Uh, Two It's about shifting away from what's wrong with me. Can you fix me? To listening, having emotional intelligence and listening, knowing when to say no, that maybe means I'm making a lot less with a client and we're doing a lot less, but I'm providing care with integrity. And literally the baseline perspective, there's nothing wrong. Like, People are walking in, they look beautiful as they are. And if they want to make a tweakment and it's right sized and everything's in alignment, I can help them with that. And there's also I like nothing that you wrong with that. call it a tweakment instead of a treatment. <laughs> yeah. And then three, the kind of the scientific part that I'm actually there's that's really technical, but I've, I have a non ablative stance. So I'm not really going to be doing lasers. So I think there's there's more effective ways to treat things. But that's a really technical thing. So let's not totally go there. That sounds but good. For to to go back to what you were just talking about, Sarah, is creating an environment. And that includes the kind of aspirational images that face publishes, which there's a lot of imagery. The graphics for my business are really strong. And it's something as a, as an artist, I really love. Yeah. Your website's really great. Really beautiful. Yeah. Check, check. It's, it's 
amazing. Thank you. But they put forward, so the Instagram, anything that's in the visual field, the editorial platform that I'm working on with some writers right now, which are going to get start to get more into philosophy. But the imagery includes fat bodies. It includes wrinkled faces. It includes tight jawlines, but it also includes some slack jawlines. It includes dark skin. It includes gray hair. It looks at different anatomies in face and body. And that is very purposeful. And that also includes gender non-conforming people. And I think that's a really, really important shift. And I'm really proud to say that the people that I provide care for range from early 20s to in their early 70s. And I am so honored to do that. And it's very, very intentional and that I'm able to do that. And I'm also providing care from people with different mother tongues. I am a Mandarin speaker, so I am able to speak to clients in that language, an intermediate Mandarin speaker, so they do have to have some English. My forms are in English. I now have somebody here with me that is a Spanish speaker, so I'm hoping to utilize that more in the future. Most people, the mode of communication is English, but I feel like I'm trying to meet people as much as I can where they're at and really varying skin tones. So, and I'm picking treatments based on being able to treat the widest variety of people. So... Yeah, there's one other thing that we can go back to it in a minute, but those are the main four structures that I feel like are that this kind of, if you want to call it radical, sure, I like that actually, let's call it radical, radical shift from what is in the kind of standard in the industry now. And there's one thing that's the most powerful thing that I'll tell you about at some point. What? <laughs> That was just such a trailer for. That's I'm true. Just very that, curious was, that was a cliffhanger. What? What you were gonna? That was a cliffhanger. Exactly. All right. Should I just go ahead and say yeah, it? Go for it. Do you mind? Just not at all. Get so into it. This 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 kind of the final form of my evolving clinic will be a public benefit corporation, and I am going to be provide you know, med spa roster of very unique treatments and market rate and that market rate work will fund free or low cost care to transgender clients in need medical aesthetic gender affirming care the clients in need so I'm also in the process of building a network of uh, providers for surgery and endocrinologists and post-op care and mental health care, that sort of thing. So that's, that's where I hope to be. That will be, you know, several years to get there. But that's my goal. It feels like this is my life calling. Yeah. I mean, just the way you even described coming to it as this like opening up of kind of enlightenment around, oh, this is why I have all these skills. And this is now how I'm going to help people and work with people. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Two things. One is, you know, my original question, which I stated where I was like, how did you transition? I have to say that your answers are make it so clear that 
entire long list of like, how could you leave the art world? And what about ego? And, you know, the metric of success and all of those, I'm like, none of that matters because I'm understanding that you basically, you had a calling. It sounds like a spiritual calling to be able to connect with people in this way. And when you have a spiritual calling, it means, I mean, in my mind, at least that's an integration of mind, body, spirit. So you know what path you are on and it is not confusing because it's, you're not being torn in different directions. But part two is that this conversation is really making me reflect on how, you know, if I have something wrong with my body, I go to my doctor, something wrong with my mind, I go to my therapist, something wrong with my face, I go to an esthetician. There is something about the way you're talking about it, where I'm like, oh, it it is actually a face, a mind, a body, an intellect, a spirit. And how can you be in a space to address all of those simultaneously And not just have, you know, if you go to a doctor, your inner health is now the only thing that's being discussed or your intellectual capabilities, like if you're in school, are the only thing that's being discussed where you have a place for an integrated complex discussion of all of those aspects of self. It's it's just like tripping my brain out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's not possible really with meeting someone to like, hit all of these things in the context of in the time frame. So it is a limited engagement, but I do, there's that I'm pulling from those skills of like the, the example I described earlier, the, the woman who was performing in the, uh, the performance I directed at the Red Rocks. Like she didn't say to me that she wanted to be a woman. I, got to know her and listen to these other cues. Hmm. Does that factor into how you work with your patients now? Like this type of energy reading? Are have you studied energy reading at all? Or is that kind of a natural skill set for I mean, you? I, and I would not. I mean, I think this is we're doing the side woo podcast. And this is exactly. what <laughs> you all love. And I love this too. This isn't so much something, you know, patient client facing that I will discuss. This is not a way that I frame the care that I provide, but this is very much what's happening. There's lots of other things that are happening, especially as I become medicalized and I'm looking at a full medical history for somebody. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's just, you know, you know how there's so many different levels of interaction that this is something that is woven throughout and informs informs the care that I give absolutely definitely you know this is a bit of a no-no in the medical field and that you know it that nurses NPs MDs and the western model it's really strictly evidence-based yeah well you know what's interesting is I'm taking a mediumship class right now and one of the most experienced people in the class is a nurse practitioner and she talks about being at the hospital and like seeing ghosts like walking around and they'll like follow her home and stuff. And then we also have a doctor in the class. So, but of course they're not telling their patients, but how could that not inform their work? You know, like, like why would you turn that help away if you have the help of the spirit world to guide? Because Once you get more experienced in energy work and mediumship, it is 
a factual sensory input that you're getting in addition to like touch, taste, smell or whatever. And so in some ways, I would say that is as concrete as anything else. You just have to be experienced enough to interpret it. For sure. I mean, I'm sitting in a box right now that's radiating invisible light that yeah. you all can't see. You can see the, the LED lights, but there's lights that's penetrating my tissues into my osseous bone dense tissue. Oh, that's, interesting. That's like, the, I, I agree. And it is to some extent in the canon, this idea. I mean, that's what magnetic res- resonance, CT scans, these are mm-hmm. a lot of these things are, are the chemistry. Physiology is all chemistry. We can't really see a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Baths and yeah. Yeah. Um, So there is this, it's just not the same language. For sure. And it might be a while before it integrates. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like integrative and functional medicine practitioners. That's what their specialty is. So there is room for it. And it's something I love about nursing. And as opposed to, as I had thought about becoming a doctor of osteopathy or even like briefly was like MD, but I think that those are such disease-based models, Mm. particularly the MD. And I really like that NP welcomes the idea of, of wellness and thinking about preventive medicine and that we're not just, obviously we have to know all the disease and the pharmacology and stuff like that, but we're not just restricted to treating disease. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Can I ask, this is sort of a more, I guess, personal question about like, what has your relationship been to your beauty or to your, yeah, the way you feel, how you, how people, your appearance. I mean, I'm slightly hedging because I remember from many, many years ago, like when, you know, 2010, 2011, I mean, and, and up to this day, but I, that's when I first saw pictures of you. I was like, holy moly, that is a really beautiful woman. Yeah, you're gorgeous. You're the best saleswoman for your business. <laughs> so. You're you're really, you're really beautiful. And how does how has that impacted, I guess? And not everybody sees their own beauty. And so I, I don't take it for granted that just because that's how I have read it, like that's how you have experienced anything. But yeah, how how has your own relationship to your own physicality influenced how you are in this space? Yeah, I love this question. Thank you for asking it. I feel like I've gone through a really big transformation personally in that I was married for 14 years and then was unmarried and had an awakening and my next relationship was with a woman who's was super masculine and i felt i felt such a connection to my sexuality in a way that i don't think i ever really had and i began to feel so sexy and i think i really liked her sexual attention on me and it was incredibly em- empowering and we're not together anymore i we had a really lovely relationship for three and a half years and i have a new partner who's a trans man and i 
somehow I don't, I don't, I can't totally explain what that kind of shift. I was married to a wonderful cis man before whom I love dearly and we share a child, but something I think that I am living more my authentic self now. And I think maybe in heterosexual relationships, because women have, I don't know if this is because women have to worry about more about assault or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like that I played down a lot of my sexuality and I do think that shift opened me literally, but like, you know, all kinds of ways. And I, that's, that's like an, an energy that I think that I use. And I do feel like, and, you know, thank you for all the compliments around my beauty. I feel beautiful. I feel sexy. I feel in my body in a way that has taken me until my middle age to actually get there. My body is not perfect. I see a lot of people and there's a huge range and people have different beauty standards. They can be individual or kind of come from a cultural um, influence or a combination of both. And I would say some of my clients see me, it seems like they might see me as this beauty goddess and others actually might see me as kind of a chubby lesbian. And because there's a really big continuum and that's fine because I'm, I am actually both and I'm comfortable with that. My job in a lot of ways, because I feel so in touch and comfortable in my own skin and my body and in my own fat or imperfections or the gray hairs growing out here, my own soft neck and jawline, but I feel beautiful. And part of what I do is I hear a lot of women's it's not exclusively women, but a lot of cis women, femme women's stories, and I hold them and I reflect back their beauty. And just sometimes it's connected to their sexuality, and sometimes it's not. And yeah. and there's a lot of really complicated things that play in there, especially if they know that I'm queer. And in some ways, I think if when clients do know that I'm queer and they're straight. And I'm like, you know, no, I'm not attracted to feminine women because I'm looking at somebody's body. I'm looking at their hip to waist ratio and stuff like that. They're getting input from you and wouldn't want to feel gross. Yeah, yeah. they ask for it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, not a sexualized space, but but I do think that there can be this freedom in serving as a mirror and me being in, imperfect and being comfortable with my imperfection and feeling beautiful and sexy. I think that that is energetic. That that's not something I can always like yeah. say there's boom, boom, boom. Sometimes people really come in with serious trauma around, around their beauty. It's kind of, it's wild. I see, I see a, you know, a fair amount of people who I think maybe were the most beautiful girl in the room and are, they don't are now, in their 40s and 50s and their power is changing or you know like here's an example of a time where I saw somebody and I like realized I couldn't I just listened to their story I had a client who was born in another country their mother had been considered the most beautiful woman in that country wow. and had been miss that country and they totally grew up with a crazy standard of beauty and that's where their power would come from and they've come in my chair and i 
do my best to see what somebody sees. And usually I can see what they're seeing, even though I have to train my eye to see them. It's like a drawing practice. You have to train to really see something. And you're like, it's emotional too. Because someone could be like, there's fat under my chin. And I'm like, where, you know? And then I really have to try and see where it is and what they're looking at, you know? And in this case, I just realized she was asking for a couple of different treatments, like, I can't justify treating her. This person has so much pain around the fact that this is the way she grew up and now her mother died from cancer. And like, she was never going to be beautiful enough. And she was literally one of the most objectively beautiful women that I have ever laid eyes on. Yeah. And we sat there and just cried. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot there. Well, I would say 99% of people who ever looked at me never would have guessed I had any work done, really. But because I think when I had my second surgery, I was like 10, that it wasn't really my choice. My parents did it because the doctor was advising them, like, based on the way your face is growing, and we should do it now because that'll be the right timing. And so I never really got buy-in. And as a result, I felt so ugly. Like you could not have told me anything different like for so long. I know. I'm like, I want to like give my little self a hug. I would have nightmares that I was horribly ugly and then nightmares that I was like a different person who looked perfect, you know? And that said, like, I think I just lost my train of thought like going into those nightmares. But but what I would say is that as a result, you know, I didn't grow up feeling like one of those beautiful people, which I think as any woman who has ever felt like average or less than, you know, you don't get trapped into that like female thing that I think the really beautiful women do, which is that your value is your looks. And as much as they probably really benefit from it at certain points in their lives, it eventually goes away, you know, and I think that's where Like, I feel lucky now as a 41-year-old woman to never have really felt that because you don't get stuck in that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think you identify this, this thing where a lot of girls who are not considered the most beautiful girl in the room learn to evolve different ways more easily in other ways yeah yeah and that that their self-worth doesn't get as as squarely placed in their beauty and not you know not to like collapse beautiful you know people just to their beauty is also contact people but with lots of talent it's hard no of course yeah i guess what i meant is i think it would be easier to get tricked into thinking that is your only value If you don't have someone encouraging you to develop other parts of yourself, you know, I think it'd be easier to buy into, oh, this, this is my only value. The idea of the corset came up as I was kind of writing about this conversation and how Mm -hmm. people used to wear corsets. And then at some point they were no longer in fashion. So as a result, women internalized the corset and had to start shaping themselves through like diet and exercise. And I feel like in some ways... That's what we've done with beauty standards. And it can feel like a little like suffocating to feel like you have to meet beauty standards without anything supporting that. And I I personally love makeup as this kind of armor as well as fashion. 
as a way to present something that maybe you don't feel right away. And I think that what you're kind of talking about can do the same thing. That was a huge side tangent and it didn't really end in a question. Yeah, really appreciate the reflections. I wish that I could have, while people are listening to this, in some ways a real-time telepathic link to what it is triggering in people because I, I am finding it really emotional, like listening to us, you know, the three of us sit and talk about beauty and pressure and embodying who we are and loving who we are. I mean, these are very, very loaded topics. And, you know, I, it's, I bet it is, it will bring up a lot of emotions in how people are hearing and interpreting these stories. And I think so much of how you interpret it is based on your own like personal experience Mm -hmm. with family of origin and how beauty was explained to you and how it was modeled to you. You know, I really never, I never felt that female power of like walk in and, and I have beauty to almost use as a commodity. I absolutely never felt it. Even in times where maybe I conventionally expressed it, I always felt dramatically like a failure. And I, to this day, I mean, I, I do not, this has not resolved even in my true middle age, where in some ways I've managed it by compartmentalizing it and having it be something separate from self, but in some way that's betrayed being integrated with appearance because your appearance is part of you. And and so it's, you know, when I was... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's a little bit of a trap to, to like seek out the like beauty feeling because what even is that? Like really when I feel most truly beautiful, and I think this kind of speaks to what you were saying, Desiree, is like, oh my God, you're being seen, you're being heard, you're doing something you love and are good at. And like, you're surrounded by people that you care about. Like, you know, if you think about all the times when you did feel good about yourself, it maybe wasn't like pretty or something. There's not like a direct correlation necessarily. But for me, but sorry, Liz, did you have more to say? I feel like I cut you off. No, I I mean, I appreciate the kind of like ping pong back and forth. And I, I think it is, I don't know, I was just thinking like when I was probably at my most conventionally beautiful, I was obsessed with body checking and would sort of try to create like little mini movies of myself. This was before cell phones, like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day to try to understand what do I look like? And I couldn't get it. I, I, you could take a billion pictures of me, you could take a billion movies, you could have a billion people describe it. And it was almost like holding onto a jellyfish, like you would have it and it would slip and you would have it and you would slip. And you, it's, it's like, there was no there there. You couldn't get to it. And you were always seeking some type of external confirmation of how am I perceived by others? And, you know, it, this was also, you know, when I was much younger, this was before med spas and estheticians and face tweaking was really part of the conversation. And I would like to firmly state that now where I am so significantly healthier and so significantly more, not perfectly, but more empowered in my wholeness I, I just haven't thought about it before. I, how much I use those little tweaks 
and how integrated they are into my higher self and not that person who I'm talking about from 20 years ago who was body checking all day. I just think these dialogues that you're opening up are really powerful and emotional. And it's hard to talk about, too, because I don't want to make someone feel like I'm judging them, you know, for being a certain way or like, I don't know. There's just so much judgment around it because describing something as beautiful is inherently this judgment that is very social. And so it's so hard to talk about without feeling like you're just leaving someone out or making someone feel bad or like... Or limiting somebody. Limiting somebody. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think there's really some powerful movements happening in the kind of popular frame of beauty. And this is a, a really big topic. So not, we probably won't be able to be totally. about it. But I I do think kind of in the broader main, main stage, we have shifts of cultural power. I think it's a really exciting time to be in this industry that is in this kind of soup that is like some of it's toxic some of it's taking their own power back um and kind of taking that with the anything goes approach and trying to reframe it into well aging as opposed to anti-aging so my best friend who is the nurse practitioner who is on the front line with, you know, there's a very vulnerable moment after especially um, women, femme presenting people are talking to doctors because they've just gotten on a scale. And so, you know, there's the like unveiling moment of they've just gotten on a scale and then it's like, now go sit down and talk to somebody. And that is that is a hard switch to make, you know, get on a scale publicly and then go have a conversation. And she is really conscious about using that open moment to try to heal and be like, you know, we have collected information just like height, just like any number. And we're here to talk about health and wellness as you are not health and wellness when you become something different. That's amazing. And I think, yeah, she's very conscious of it. She's like, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful, that moment is a portal moment to something that really shakes and breaks down a lot of people's artifice and a lot of people's defenses because you're stripped something very, you know, that is very personal and is not supposed to be seen and all of that kind of stuff. But the body neutrality concept Um, where it's not like love yourself more because you have curves, love yourself less because you traditionally, you know, look like a model, like as you are, what are you and how can you embrace yourself as you are? I mean, it's just, it's so simple and so radical. I love it. I'm feeling like very like, oh my gosh, I've asked all my questions and I have so much food for thought. Desiree, what are you feeling like has not been addressed that maybe you want to clarify or talk about more or something that anything i i would love to talk about the idea of of well aging supplanting the the 
the idea of anti-aging. I try not to use the language of anti-aging because I think it's inherently ageist and perhaps inherently sexist. And I believe that aging is a natural and desirable outcome of living. And well, there's literally only one way to not age. Like you die. I mean, you have to age if you're going to live. live. (laughs) It's it's part of how we it. It's an unfolding. I mean, and I think there's some gray area too, honestly, because I, while I don't see aging as the model of a disease, there are ways that you can slow your biological aging. Obviously, your chronological age will continue to happen, but you can slow biological aging to have increased wellness. So again, metrics of wellness are like your mobility, your meaning in life, your social connections. There's lots of things that go into kind of wellness metrics, but a lot of that is lifestyle stuff and it could be treatment based. So I'm really interested personally in aging well. I'm not trying to necessarily live to be 150, but I would like to through my lifespan, be vital and feel beautiful, feel sexy or sensual with my partner, want to minimize disease and pain in my body. And those are, for many of us, there's a lot of things we can do to achieve that. And we can start really basically with Mm. nutrition. Well, I think that decoupling chronological age from biological age is, you know, that's something I haven't thought that much about. And also, like through all of this, the intention, you know, what is the intention behind what you are doing? And Sarah, I mean, I know just through the course of this podcast, you know, when you're entering the spirit world, like nothing is more important than your intention and what you bring to the conversation via your energy. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's a shift in how you understand what exercise is, a shift in how you understand what nutrition is in terms of preserving your life force rather than, you know, swimsuit season, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Definitely. Love that. I love you identifying life force. I just want to earmark that in my own brain. Well, my mom right now is declining in health and mental ability and executive functioning and memory. And, but you know, the older, older, older age is not pretty. Like it's, it's, not a redemptive tale. It, it's, it's really hard to see and experience. So it, it is, it's, and I was just home last week. So it's just very clear to me, like the concept of life force and holding on to things because when things start to truly shift, truly change when, you know, maybe some dementia takes hold or some very physiological changes take hold. There's no going back. There's, you know, there's some changes that are really hard. Although I would argue that 
physical wellness and mm-hmm. spiritual mm-hmm. wellness can be different, you know, like if your body, and I think this is something that for me, my looks have never been like under my control. Like I was born a certain way that I wouldn't have chosen. It's not normal, quote unquote, what I was born with. And so that kind of made it so that I dissociated a little bit from my body in the sense that like my body's going to do what it's going to do, but that doesn't necessarily relate to who I feel to be inside. And so I think, and I feel like I've read, you know, like spiritual leaders talk about this where when you get older, like it doesn't mean that your spirit has to dim, you know, just because your body is failing you. Like you can still be really present and have that life force without the body being physically active. Like they, you know, that is possible. And I, I think it's hard, but I, I would just push back on saying that like both have to decline at the same time because your soul is eternal, you know, like as a medium, the first thing you learn, your soul is eternal. It radiates pure light here and in the next life, you know? So to say that that's going to disappear, you know, I broke my ankle and everyone's like, oh my God, like, are you okay? And it's like, well, it's just my body. Like, that's not who I am. That's not my soul, you know? So I think that is a story we tell ourselves and it's easy to get into like a shitty place if your body is failing because that sucks. And it's the same with aging. Like, I think if your life force radiates through your body, then it doesn't matter what you look like. I think it it matters if you pay attention to yourself and treat yourself well, which is where Desiree comes in. But- I, I so agree with what you just said. Yeah, I really appreciate what you just said, that you're defining beauty around life force. And that is something kind of in the medical field that I don't feel super comfortable mm. saying right now, yeah. especially as I'm like, I'm a student, I'm learning, but I, I believe that. But But, you know, you're also, and I would just like to Nate, you're an older student and that is different than being, there's a maturity around that. That's different than being a 22 year old student. You know, you are bringing something through life experience that is not what a kid could raise. Your level of consciousness is different, is raised from the beginning. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. What what we were talking about earlier, just one thing I just want to add, like a cliff note, is that just the thought, like, what if we don't expect that our body and health has to radically decline as we chronologically age? And I am also putting forward that dementia, loss of bone density, like loss of mental facilities, loss of vitality, loss of movement. What if that is not actually what has to happen? Yeah. Um, or like radical loss of movement. You know, there, there are a lot of tools that are coming out and a lot of science and literature that, you know, it's not necessarily easy. And I think there's definitely like a conversation around class and the financial accessibility to be had. But uh, there are lots of ways to to kind of well age or de-age, if you will, biologically. And I don't necessarily think 
the kind of like typical way we think about decline has to actually characterize humans. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for like, this is gets into territory where I'm not maybe as educated as I'd like to be to talk about it. But the idea of like the spiritual lesson around your body and where, you know, like I said, I like broke my foot a few years ago. And I feel like one of the reasons that happened was one, I wasn't listening to my intuition around doing a certain exercise. And I did high knees without shoes on and, you know, definitely fucked up my foot from that. But I think the other part that I learned from it was, oh, yeah, life isn't over because I broke my foot. I don't have to bring myself down, you know. So that was a lesson that I learned from kind of seeing my body fail, but knowing that inside I didn't have to myself, you know. And I think that we all learn lessons through our body. I'm reading The Course in Miracles, and it talks about the body as like a tool for learning. And that's like its main function. And it isn't bad or good. And it doesn't have anything like it doesn't have feelings, like everything kind of goes through it as a way to teach us lessons. And so when you take that approach, using whatever happens to your body as a lesson to learn, how do you see people's like physical presentation when it comes to karma or Do you see it that way at all? I am cisgendered. So it's like, it's a really, it's a hypothetical exercise for me to imagine. And I feel very comfortable in the gender that I was born. This is, this feels right for me. So it's a, it's definitely an exercise to kind of imagine occupying that experience. But um, if you all will afford that. Yeah, that's super fair. And obviously subject to reproach and feedback and and soft and open to that but i would imagine that for one person who identifies as trans the answer might be to do things to affirm them in the way they see themselves and they want to be seen and i would think that for another person an equally valid response to that would be to come to peace with occupying the body, their body as it is, as it evolves with growing secondary sex characteristics, etc. And I personally, it's not my call to say whether one is the right answer or not. That's the individual's call. If I am called into service, which I am, with people who fit this kind of profile, who identify as transgender, I do serve this population. My job is to not tell them like how, let's say they're a transgender woman, to tell them how they can look more feminine. That's not my job unless they ask that of me. And so that does happen. Sometimes people say, can you work with my face to make it look more feminine? And I think with the artist Mm. background, if they ask me that and it feels right and the energy is in the right place and I feel like I can do this in integrity and I'm using some kind of rubrics around their emotional wellness and then I'm using some of that like psychic stuff or energetic stuff, um, I can draw on my artist background to be like, oh yeah, this this distance from from here to here on the face tends to be longer or shorter, 
on a woman. These are ways I can do these things, like almost intuitively, mm-hmm. how we clock a feminine face versus a masculine face. And right. I mean, that's a very non-judgmental way of of talking about it because the traditional language would be, okay, let's make you prettier and prettier and pretty, you know, and go talk about it as a leaving from failure and going towards success rather than alignment with more of an inner self. Yeah. I appreciate though saying non-judgment free because that is one of the, uh, one of the kind of tenets of, of, face as a business is that it is a judgment-free zone. Desiree, I think, yeah, we have a lot uh, of good things to think about after this call. I feel like maybe we'll schedule another call with you a couple months when we've unpacked all of the topics. Well, I just really enjoyed both of you. And I think we've all been vulnerable in the conversation and, and have um, been generous and ex- sharing part of our personal stories. And I just want to acknowledge that. And I, those things really spoke to me from both of your behalf. So thank you for doing that. Just in the context of our exchange, I really, I really appreciate it. And I, I appreciate how thoughtful both of you are. So it's just been a, a total joy. Thank you for this opportunity. Likewise, thank you so much for coming and being so sensitive to all the different issues that we talked about. And yeah, my joy. <sighs> I feel the same way. I feel very like it's time to journal and like sit in a sunbeam. But thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.